We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to our Christmas edition. I couldn't resist that. I hope you and your family have a good holiday, blessed with peace and goodwill. Unfortunately, much as we long to make good on this intention, things do not always go to plan. Too much food, alcohol and togetherness can descend into settling old scores. So-called truth-telling and family fights. I mean, you could have one over the sleigh bell effect straight away. So how do you truly get on with your loved ones and your in-laws over Christmas? For a deep dive into families, I thought I would invite one of the extended Meaningful Life family to join me. My witness is Dr. Cheryl Fraser. She is both a Buddhist and a sex therapist and the author of Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. She has a podcast herself called Sex, Love and Elephants, where I've been a guest myself. Her previous edition of The Meaningful Life is called How to Stay in Love. Now, Christmas is full of nostalgia for me and I think lots of people. So let's sort of dive into the nostalgia and tell me about your Christmas childhoods. (laughs) Well, as you know, your listeners may not know, I grew up and uh, have returned to live on Vancouver Island in Canada, small town. And I was really blessed as a kid in that unusually for Canadians on the West Coast. My extended family were all here. What I mean is often people's grandparents were back in England or the old country or across the country. But I had all four of my originally British-based grandparents in the small town. So our family Christmases were really quite lovely. We were the only kids. There weren't aunts, uncles, and cousins. So all four of the grandparents would come to our family home. There was heaps of presents, all the deliciousnesses, you know, from the uh, Christmas cake to my very, very favorite, the mince tarts and everything else. And the the plum pudding with the with the pennies wrapped in wax paper and whoever got the penny, it was good luck all year or something, wasn't it, Andrew? Something like that. We had sixpences. Ah, well, they're worth more than a penny. You kids made out better than us. It was a really, really nice time, but I was a bit of an odd kid, which probably is why I do what I do, much like you attempting to figure out the meaning of a meaningful life. And although Christmas was wonderful, no real drama, no drunk uncles, etc., I vividly remember one day on Boxing Day in Canada, we still call it Boxing Day, the 26th. I remember being in the car going to somewhere else. And it was a rainy, dreary day, as it often is on Vancouver Island in December. And everything looked bleak. The Christmas lights the next morning looked depressing and bleak. And as we drove, I now realized retrospectively, I was having basically a holiday hangover and a bit of a depression feeling after all those expectations and all that anticipation for this big day, maybe Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And then I felt very deflated and very sad in the back seat, looking through the rain-spattered window, thinking, in a way, great, now I've got to wait a whole year to feel good again. (laughs) 
in a way. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Funny kid I was. So a mixture of really poignant memories, but also I think it's as an adult, what are our expectations at this time of year and how do we feel even when they are well met? Maybe our partner dazzles us and we have a really wholesome, delightful holiday season with people we love. Where are we when we're always looking for the big event, the big thing, the big present to make us feel happy? So there's a bit of a mixed bag of of my recollections. Well, I'm thinking of a magical Christmas at this moment, and I'm also thinking of a bit of a nasty shock around Christmas, both around about Father Christmas, because I can still vividly remember lying in bed, and we were in my original childhood home, so I was less than seven years old. And I remember lying there thinking, Father Christmas is going to come tonight. Sometime during the night, he's actually going to come into my bedroom, and this old rugby sock that belonged to my father originally is going to be filled with all sorts of goodies. And that was just, the world was full of magic and I was alive Mm. to it, which I think shows what a a vivid imagination I had. You know, I believed it 100% and just the extraordinariness of life. Fast Mm. forward to actually the Christmas after I was seven years old, we moved to a new town and I went to a new school. And I remember I used to go home for lunch and there was another boy in my class who also went home for lunch. And we went past some kind of Christmas decoration in a shop window and they had a picture of Father Christmas. And from what I said, he realised that I still believed in Father Christmas. Ah. And that afternoon, one of our tasks was making a Christmas mobile with Father Christmas at the centre of it. And as we all coloured in our Father Christmases, this so-called friend of mine chirped up and said, Marshall still believes in Father Christmas. And I was the only person in the class who still believed in Father Christmas. And I felt felt really rather stupid. And they sort of broke it to me that it was really my parents. And I went home and asked them if this was true. And and I hope I'm not going to spoil things for you, Cheryl, but it actually turned out to be true. No, no. <laughs> Watch a middle-aged woman's heartbreak live on podcast. <laughs> You've robbed me of my meaningful life, Andrew. Well, my sister had already worked it out because she had seen that Father Christmas used exactly the same rapid paper as our pet my parents. But I was unable to see that because my suspension of disbelief was so strong. But I still mm. remember the shame of being the person who still believed. I mean, I'm not ashamed now. I think it's actually really, really rather wonderful that I can open my imagination in that sort of powerful kind of way. I think so too. And I think it's what we also do when we fall in love, is we open our imagination in a powerful way to the possibility of happiness. And I think it's beautiful. And then the world cynically tells us there is no soulmate and things don't last forever. And do we become crushed and bitter and go stomp on other kids' dreams like your buddy did? (laughs) Or do we say, all right, well, where's the realistic joy? So you had a whole set of family traditions when you got together with your partner. Did you find that they clashed? No, he had vaguely similar traditions and uh, he very gracefully adopted the one that feels the most sentimental and, and important to me, which is I love the Christmas stocking. Mine wasn't a used rugby sock. It was slightly a step up. (laughs) 
I think mom made us a felt red, you know, tra- traditional kind of red with a white top. But in our home, because the grandparents, the aforementioned grandparents, came to our home around, say, 10 a.m. with their you know, baskets of gifts and food. I mean, we were little kids. There was three of us. So we'd be up at 4.35 a.m., you know, all hopped up on Santa Claus, Father Christmas. And so our parents gracefully allowed us, no matter how early we got up, we could go get our now stuffed stockings, which were in the living room, not at the foot of our bed, and go racing into their bed and hop on their bed and and unpack our stockings. And they would always give us some sort of toy in there that would keep us busy for a few hours and out of their hair. So the stockings became, for me, the favorite part of Christmas, even though I was very blessed to have some lovely gifts under the tree later. And with every boyfriend or partner I've had, I've, I've initiated, let's do a stocking for each other. And so uh, I'm with my now husband for 10 years. And the first Christmas together, I gave him due warning that, you know, stockings are really important. Is this something you'd be game to do? And he said, sure. I said, but there's a twist now that I'm adult. It needs to be a sexy stocking. Mm. And really fun. And I teach this to the couples in my program. They're they're building their sexy stockings right now as we record this in, in December here. And it's quite simple. The whole thing doesn't need to be sexy. It can be other lovely gifts or mementos or, you know, I always buy them new, cute underwear, whatever, not particularly sexy ones, just serviceable. But the idea is you put in something romantic, and it can be an IOU or tickets to something or a weekend away, or I owe you a romantic dinner and evening on a day of your choice, that sort of thing. And something sexy to keep the sensual spark alive, which think about it, Christmas is not considered a sexy time of year. Even with our partner, it tends to be more family, compassion, heart-based, lovely. But so I challenge people. Some people put in a little bit of you know, lubricant or a naughty little truth or dare game. I love to give away to, to couples. You can get them anywhere on any online shopping or, or good shop, but just cards that say truth or dare, and you pick your truth or your dare, and they're sexy. They're, they're titillating. I had one couple who put in, uh, you know, 50 positions to try book or whatever, but just this idea. So the stockings are the biggest deal in our house, and we both go quite all out to make them fun. Sometimes we set a um, dollar limit, like stuff the stocking for under $40, and you've got to do a lot of homemade things or notes, et cetera. Tucking a love letter or a card with some meaningfully penned words is a beautiful thing to do. So that tradition we do. And we spend a lot of time on our own around the holidays. My family's all local. We go to various dinners. That's nice. But we really like having the 25th for ourselves. We watch the dog. I know you're a dog lover. Mm-hmm. The dog always gets a wrapped squeaky toy and tears it open maniacally. And we hop up the cats on catnip and everybody's happy as can be. It's really lovely. Once we went for, I think, Christmas Eve, because for Protestants, Christmas Day is more important. We went to friends who were dog lovers for Christmas Eve, and they gave our dog a jumper for Christmas, a dog (laughs) jumper. And you have never in your whole life seen a more miserable dog than the dog when you had the dog jumper on. He wore it once for two seconds for the pleasure of these friends and never ever again. So funny. And for the uninitiated in North America, a jumper is a sweater or a jacket. Right. <laughs> they're thinking, they're, I think they're imagining your dog on like a bouncy castle. <laughs> no, I think he could have enjoyed that, but. Uh, yeah, more so than the sweater jumper. So I've come across some research in Germany about what do people fall out about over Christmas. And I just mm-hmm. wondered if you could guess what is the number one thing. I mean, I don't think the people in Germany are that different from everywhere else, because for the uninitiated, I live in uh, Berlin. This came from my German lesson. So 
they had research, so we had to learn all the vocabulary of this. So what do you think is the number one reason Germans fall out with each other at Christmas? My first guess is extended family in some form. Well, you could be right on that. The number one reason is they call it harmony, which is trying to make Christmas the season of comfort and joy. Hmm, well put. You're trying so hard to have harmony that you all fall out about it. Mm -hmm. And end up arguing or that one little trigger, especially when well lubricated with too much brandy or Christmas beer or whatever it is. Yeah. And the tensions of, I certainly find this, I used to quip, and it wasn't meant to be a funny quip, unfortunately, that the busiest time for a psychologist or a therapist in North America is after Thanksgiving or Christmas, because people go home for the holidays, and they're seen as the petulant or shy or not very bright 14-year-old they were 30 years ago, and people treat you the same, and you get triggered. It can be quite exhausting, even if you've got a lovely family. But those sort of extended family views of who we are and old wounds and no one can see that I'm successful now or I'm not shy now or etc. Or they're asking for the 799th time, have you got a boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> I.e., are you still an abject failure in our eyes? Exactly. See if you can guess what number two is. Well, it could be around expectations around gift giving. Or, you know, you didn't make a fuss of me and you gave me an iron is the old cliche in a heterosexual relationship on the female side. And the guy gets something that is completely not in his ballywick and it goes across all genders, orientations, trans, etc. Is, don't you know me well enough to light me up with the perfect gift? I could see that would be a good source of arguments, but in Germany, they're not so uh, keen on gifts. And actually, I think this is the most revealing answer of all. 29%, which is actually equal with the harmony one, they don't know what caused the argument. Isn't oh, that interesting? Bingo. That's fantastic. And whoever designed the questionnaire or asked that in a way that that answer came up is brilliant. We're even implying as two experts that there are, you know, the five obvious things, etc. But I don't know. I went with great intentions. I was in a good mood. I didn't drink much at all. And within five, 10 minutes, I felt titchy and triggered and annoyed. And I ended up saying something uncouth or unkind and having a bit of a miserable day. Yeah. In our world, this is called something that's coming from the unconscious. We are, we're consciously going there full of a, a ray of sunshine. And inside, there's an inner Grinch that has got some material that we're trying to ignore, but our unconscious will not be ignored. Mm -hmm. And how we assume it's easy to show up with people we generally more or less love, even if we don't like all of them all the time, and have a pleasant day, a pleasant meal, and good times. However, it can feel, what's the term, imposter syndrome, that all year long we don't really talk about our family dramas with our family because we're not a family who acknowledges these things. And then on this day, I really like that translation you've given of trying to create or keep harmony. And yet we're like, but we're not really harmonious and we're acting like a, I don't know, a postcard family or something. And uh, is anybody going to mention that, <laughs> you know, X, Y, Z? Uh, I mean, we're teasing a bit, but also it's really poignant, isn't it? I mean, it's heartbreaking when we intend to have a lovely day and put any petty or large differences aside and it, it either blows up or kind of withers in a bit of a gasp of defeat. 
The next one, I think, is one that we would have sort of guessed, and this is arguments over visits, because having to go and visit lots of people and one person can't drink is a, a bit of a problem. So I can understand why that would be a source of argument, along with alcohol that comes forth at 8%, which I think mm -hmm. we were all expecting alcohol to be an issue. Maybe it's the one people don't admit to as much, or they're quite convinced it doesn't play a factor. Not with me. And this one might make this research a bit dated. What's TV program film to watch with 3%? Did you used to have arguments about what to watch on the telly when you were a kid and there was just sort of, because we're both old <laughs> enough to remember yeah. one television. There was one television with 13 channels and only one of them was showing Charlie Brown's Christmas or The Grinch Who Stole Christmas or The... Uh, wonderful life. So we didn't have to argue about it. And now I'm pretty much a tyrant. We have to watch The Grinch in my house, so there's no contest. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that one of the main problems of Christmas is it's really difficult if you're intensely focused on other people. So this is what I would call the people pleasers Christmas. And I have to thank another guest on this program, Kathleen Smith, who did a, an episode of The Meaningful Life on Anxiety and has a new book out called True to You. These are the things that people who are intensely focused on others might have problems with over Christmas. So I'm going to give you some of them and let's see if they speak to you as well. So I've put the first three together as like a group. Continually asking someone, do you like it after you've given them a gift? being focused on whether someone else is enjoying their meal, wanting someone to have as much fun as you are. Mm, all of which sound exhausting and take you completely out of your own experience. Yes, it certainly is a thing. And I'd put forward that perhaps at the December holiday time of year, people who aren't even endemically people pleasers can fall into that as well. The whole odd thing, at least in North America, I think it's fairly universal-ish if you practice Christmas in any way, is, oh my goodness, they got me a gift and I didn't get them something, which mm. is just wildly neurotic in my view, because if the person who gave me a gift did it in an expectation of quid pro quo, then that's pretty shabby. And I don't need to feel guilty about anything. Instead, could I accept with grace? Thank you, Andrew. That's entirely unexpected and really thoughtful of you. Instead of, oh, I didn't get you anything which is very against a principle I love in Buddhism. It's called dana, D-A-N-A, -A, and it translates to generosity in English. And it's very clear that to be a generous person in that way of thinking, I need to be equally good at receiving as I am at giving. And I think in the West, we think of if I'm generous, I love to give. And it's fun to do a little experiment. Everybody can do this, is watch someone who loves to give. It sincerely loves to give. It's, 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 it's a joy to them. They're thoughtful. It lights them up. Can they receive with grace? So, yeah, I think gift-giving and all of this kind of stuff around people-pleasing, it can really be a problem. And I'm sure you give similar advice, which is learn to say no much more often over the holiday season to protect your own energy and your own core needs, which might be making sure your partner and or your children or your nuclear family are are happy and connected. There's going to be too many events and too many, um, what's the word I'm looking for, gatherings for us to attend them all. And to just say, you know, I'd love to come. Unfortunately, I'm not able to. And therefore, what happens? Ideally, we conserve a bit of energy. We please ourselves in a what I call a healthy, selfish way, which is care of self. And then we can show up 
so much exhaustion, burnout. Just it, You can tune your ears for the word exhaustion this time of year. And it's like, really, the happiest time of the year? Then maybe unexhaust yourself in some ways. We can all do something to say no to something. And the tricky bit is even saying no to something we dearly love to do and sounds like a great deal of fun and is intriguing to us. Sometimes the healthy and gracious thing to do is to decline this year to conserve some energy so you don't have a overwrought, over-emotional, miserable, miserable time at a time of year, whether you Christian or not. It's a time of year to gather, ideally, isn't it? To be kind, to give generously, to support causes. These are all very positive things, and we can get really caught up and turn them into quite the grind. I hate Christmas. I once went and spent Christmas with a dear friend who had a wonderful idea, and this was a recycling Christmas. You had to bring presents for other people that were things of your own that you no longer wanted that you were going to pass on to other people. So you you wrapped them up and you just, I mean, you weren't 100% certain who was going to be there, and you just brought these things and you gave them out to people wrapped up. So nobody actually had to buy anything and nobody had to be too upset if it wasn't the perfect gift because it was all terribly random. And, you know, you did get some nice surprises. It's a fantastic idea. I really, really like that idea for all the reasons you've just illuminated. And it takes us away from that whole chaos that can ensue. Besides, you know, what do they say? One person's trash is another person's treasure. You might get lucky. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I got a couple of books that I really enjoyed reading. So here's another example of being a people pleaser at Christmas. And I think this is a, a year round thing. Not talking about something that interests you because it might bore others. Mm. Now, is that kind and generous or is that actually being a people pleaser and not true to yourself? Yeah, that one's tricky because I think it depends. If you habitually do it with sort of a self-critic, then I think it's negative. But actually kind of reading the room and having good social skills and sometimes adapting to that, if it's not sacrificing self in some way, I think it can also be an appropriate choice. What do you think? Well, I can see you'd be rather upset if your partner was sort of holding stuff back that was really important to them. I mean, but obviously, if they're going to tell the story about, you know, how much they love Jaguar cars for the 10 millionth time, you might be rather relieved they were holding it back. <laughs> yeah, I think if it's general company, then I would quibble that that's people pleasing. It can be more just reading the room and being socially appropriate. If I'm completely passionate about widgets and, and wamboozles, and most people find that quite dull, I might not choose to share it with your partner. I quite agree there's a level of transparency and openness. And if we're not saying something to our romantic partner or close friend or business relationship that's important, that needs to be said because they might not like it. That's a people-pleasing oh, sort of slow slide down to more and more problems. Now, this one is going to, I could just hear the Christmas arguments now. Mm -hmm. Acting over-responsible for your partner's mood and breaking the tension with constant jokes. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that playing out as me feeling judged or feeling, you know, my partner needs me to be a, a certain way. Again, I can see flip sides to most of these. If that was done with a skillful and loving touch, not a critical touch, it can actually sometimes be helpful. Or an anxious touch. That would be the other one, which would be really uh, micromanaging difficult. and I, yeah. I'm stressed by this, so I need you to be different. Yeah, that's quite different. Yeah. 
goodness, it's, it's all rather tiring, isn't it? It is, isn't it? How's about this one? <laughs> oh no, there's more. I'm getting depressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've only just begun, as they, as, as the carpenters would say. Insisting people have some dessert because you're having dessert and drinking because others are drinking. Okay, that hits a nerve in me. I don't generally consume dairy, grain, or sugar on a regular basis at all, and I don't drink alcohol. It doesn't agree with my body. It makes me feel ill. So if someone tries to cajole or bully me into it, I've got a firm freaking boundary. (laughs) Respect people's food choices. It's that simple. And I must say, I've never been accused of being boring at a party. I don't need booze to be the life of the party. (laughs) It's one of the great lies of our time that alcohol is necessary to have a good time. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not anti-alcohol at all. Most of my friends enjoy good wine and I'll have my soda water. But the whole, the, the interesting psychology around, I can't enjoy this choice I'm making for myself unless you join me in it. That's like, well, maybe you need to look at your your relationship to dessert then or calories because, you know, that not in an unkind way, but you know, if you kind of need me to have a big piece of pie with you, which I might if I'm, you know, if it's working for me that day. But yeah, that whole thing is frankly annoying. I think this one would be a source of arguments as well. Worrying about creating enough holiday memories. Yeah. And I think, Andrew, wouldn't that be so much worse in our newer digital age of the last 10 or 20 years, where it's all comparison and all over and Facebook and all these things? I don't tend to be part of them. They're not bad nor good. They're just not what I choose to do with a lot of my time. But yeah, what is that? There's this pressure that if it's not a memory that we can go back to that's not captured in some way, that we failed almost, isn't it? That we haven't done it correctly. We haven't done something worthy of remembering. And the implication because of the societal pressure and the media pressure and in movies and everything else, in North America, it's just ridiculous the amount of happy Christmas movies on all of the streaming services. It's enough to make you want to barf, frankly. But (laughs) that sense of that if we didn't, then we're broken. Have you seen the the one called Jingle Until You Vomit? No, but I think I want to watch that one. I've just made it up, but it sounds like... (laughs) It sounds like one that would be there. Jingle all the way, I'm sure there's one called that. But Jingle Till You Vomit, I think is one made go. especially for you. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a Grinch. My heart has grown three sizes, but I do get a bit exhausted by all the frippery. So what about creating one meaningful moment this holiday? One meaningful moment, maybe with your sweetheart, a gentle kiss under the proverbial or imagined mistletoe, or just really, that's why I love the sexy stocking challenge or anything people want to adapt that to, with a love note or a love letter or a card where you, a few handwritten lines, you know, thank you, Andrew, for sharing your life with me. Mm. I choose you each day. That's a memory. Mm. That's something that can last. And I like the written word because you can tuck it away or I've got some cards behind me, actually, yeah. that you can see on the video. I have a friend who makes an artist every year. He draws a Christmas card and I've got them gathered back there. They're memories I can see again and again. Mm, that's beautiful. Becoming over-responsible for people's travel schedules. Oh, the control freaks among us, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that in my family, Christmas is the first part of the gathering would be devoted to which way people arrived. You know, did they take the A1 or the M1? 
<laughs> and what was the traffic like at Junction 17 sort of kind of stuff? It's sort of the seasonal annual conversation that means absolutely nothing, but people are upset if that you haven't been asked how they got there. You know, I didn't think it was possible for Andrew G. Marshall to bore me, but the last minute of this podcast bored me. I don't want to hear about your traffic drama. <laughs> uh, many times when you talk about your family, I recognize my family, but obviously this is one thing that they completely and utterly were different in. Well, quite simply, we lived in a small town and we all lived a 10-minute drive away. Otherwise, I'm uh -huh. sure we would have moaned as well. Well, in England, there's two topics of conversation that you can always talk to people about. And one is the traffic and the other is the weather. And you can put the two together quite often as well at Christmas. So everybody's happy. <laughs> well, I suppose they are safe topics. They're probably not going to lead to a family explosion. And I'm, I'm saying that only partly tongue in cheek, right? So avoiding people completely when they're unhappy or anxious. Yeah, it depends. If it's your miserable relative who is generally miserable, likes to bring someone down with them, is a, a term that was floating around a decade ago I liked was an energy vampire. You, know, mm. you get in their orbit and they just exhaust you and bum you out. And if the person isn't truly struggling, then it might actually be wise to say, hey, Andrew, nice to see you, and to move over to the other part of the room and converse with someone else. Conversely, of course, if someone's actually in some real distress, other than their sort of self-created curmudgeonly persona all year round, then um, I would tend not to avoid them. I might check in, etc. What do you think? Well, I think that we do spend too much time avoiding our partner's unwelcome emotions. I did a, a session today where it was basically all about, ask me how I'm doing. And each of them was frightened to ask the other one, how they were doing in case, you know, they were angry or upset or whatever. And it's something very sad about feeling that you can't bring all of your emotions to the table and that only some emotions are acceptable. I mean, I'm thinking once again of my childhood we, where everything had to be nice. So yeah. all those, what's the opposite of not, not, not nice feelings mm -hmm. had to be left behind. And yeah. And that's nasty. That is entirely true. And my answer was for if you're in a big family gathering or a big group of people who you might choose to avoid. If it's your partner, even if their general persona is curmudgeonly or dour or like Eeyore in the Winnie the Pooh sagas, I would certainly say, you know, what's up, babe? Is there anything I could do? And also maybe a bit of tough love. See if you agree with this or not. If your partner tends to get miserable and say they hate the holidays and it's all bunch of stupid money and hang out with people I don't like. There may be some accuracy to that. But to say, yeah, fair enough, but do you want to spoil it for everybody else? Like, how can we help you have a better time? Like, if I maneuvered you that you got to talk to my brother-in-law that you really enjoy and kind of, you know, protected you that you got to have some fun with him and weren't expected to be the life of the party with all the people you don't click with, does that help? But calling them to some responsibility for being, you know, a decent, kind person as well in company? And I think you've got to have this conversation reasonably early because yeah. obviously just before you're about to go off to see somebody, it's not the time to have the conversation about whether you want to go or not. The time to have these conversations is possibly and sort of August time. You know, I know we always go around next door to the blogs every mm -hmm. Christmas Eve, but this year can we do something else? Because right. it doesn't work for me. Now 
if when you say it early enough, you can say thank you very much, blogs. But unfortunately, we've, we're otherwise occupied, or we've decided that the one thing we never ever do is just stay at home and be together. And this year, we've, that's what we've decided to do. And the blogs might be disappointed, but they will mm-hmm. understand. If you don't turn up, and they've already, you know, started roasting the chestnuts, they're going to be mm-hmm. they're going to be really annoyed. Yeah, that's really important. And you said a couple things there. Let's highlight for everybody. The first is plan ahead anticipate. You may quite disagree because I might love going to the blogs. It might be my favorite thing in one of our rituals and you might despise it. So do we make a compromise where every other year we'll go? Or do I go alone for half the evening and then come and join you for the rest? As opposed to arguing right before, having a big dust up the day after, or even worse, Andrew, the notorious whisper fight. Whisper fighting at the event where we Mm. think people can't hear us just because we're whispering. And we think people aren't aware we're in conflict when it's absolutely gruesomely obvious to everyone. Mm. Asking people, what do you want to do without ever stating your own opinion? I'll do what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at best, just someone who's an excessive people pleaser or a bit conceptually lazy and doesn't like to bother to think of things. At worst, passive aggressive. I'm going to let you decide. And then if I don't like it, I'll whine about it. And I hear a lot of this dynamic, I suspect you do too, from the other partner, from the um, super planner, really detail-oriented person who's great at thinking things up, always kind of had their eyes on cool things coming to town for us to do, concerts or events or so-and-so performers coming. And the exhaustion they they talk about in terms of a romantic connection is, I'm always planning our fun stuff. I just wish... Even occasionally, my partner would plan something or have an opinion or say what they'd like to do. And that's often a real surprise to the more, we'll call them, go along with the flow partner who says, really? I thought you liked it. I'm just like, sure, babe, whatever you want. It's cool by me. And they're like, I like it to a degree, but it's also really tiring. It's like traveling with a travel companion. And this happened to me years ago when I was doing the Eurail thing in Europe with the backpack when I was 20 or whatever. Um, I'm a planner. I'd be reading my Lonely Planet. No iPhone back then. You had to do it the hard way. And looking for a hostel or whatever, and you'd meet a few people on the train you'd stick with and travel with for a week or so. You're going the same place. And I remember vividly one day, the three people I'd met from all over, we were kind of hanging together at the hostel, and they looked at me and said, so what are we doing today? Mm. And I thought, I'm out of here. Like, it's been really nice hanging with you all, but I'm your tour guide. And it wasn't a spiteful thing, but it was a fatiguing thing. I would have loved it if one of them had said, I read this cool article that there's a waterfall that most people don't know about. I'm going to go. Would you like to come? Which is a bit of a discourse on, it's really not a loving act to always say, honey, whatever you want to do is fine with me, even if it's with a good intention. A great way to rock your partner's world this season and in the year to come is to even say once a month, I'm going to plan something. Once a month, a date night, an outing. I'm going to plan your birthday. Even if it's out of your comfort zone, you could crowdsource some friends of your partner. That's a great tip, by the way. If you don't know how to plan Andrew's birthday, because you're not good at that, crowdsource various friends. What does he like? What would light him up? Does anybody have a good idea? And then execute it. Mm. I mean, I do find this is actually an increasing problem that I see in my in my therapy room. One person feels responsible for planning and doing everything. And mm-hmm. they say, it's your turn. And 
either the partner doesn't do anything mm-hmm. or the partner, because obviously I do couples, so the partner's there. The partner says, but everything I come up with, you don't like. Because these yes. these super cool planners, you know, who know when um, Metallica or whoever are coming through town, you know, they're not going to really be that thrilled with just going to the Chinese on the corner. If that's what you organise, you know, you've somehow got to get it to be Chinese New Year and there's going to be paper dragons sort of kind of thing to even, yeah. e- even you know, get to a mildly successful thing. And if that's not your bag, that's a really high bar to get over. That is so well put. And it circles back to what I was sharing earlier about receiving with grace. And I see the exact same dynamic you've just described, where the overplanner begs, cajoles, and often really complains rather bitterly after time. You know, Andrew, could you just plan something? I do everything, all these fun things. Would you just get it together? And then you plan something, sometimes with quite a good heart. And you've got, well, I've got this idea, and I'm going to take you to the train museum. And I'm like, the train museum? (laughs) (laughs) And then the poor person who's tried, you've begged them to try, they've tried, and then you smack them down, and then you're surprised they don't want to try again. Yeah, and it's not as bad as the train museum. It, you know. <laughs> hey, people like trains. I'd go, train museum? Okay, let's give it a shot. Like, can I receive with grace? And no doubt a train museum could be quite fun if I just shift my attitude to one of curiosity. Yes. So if you came to Berlin and suggested we went to the Curryverse Museum, I think I'd probably skip that opportunity. Well, then we need to work on your ability to receive with grace, my friend, (laughs) regardless of what's offered, if the intention of the offer is good. Have you ever tasted curry first? (laughs) No, but I don't think I would want to, but maybe I'd go, I'm a vegetarian, so I could beg out of the verst part, couldn't I? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Germans don't really like things that are spicy. So um, it's not, it's got no curry and it's not proper, and it's not proper sausage either. But for some oh, reason, yeah. it is incredibly popular. It's a sort of Berlin thing to do to eat curry first. Well, each to their own. So the last one of these is participating in every activity so no one will think you're a bad sport. Right. The opposite of saying no. Yeah. The opposite of, of, of conserving your energy. And unfortunately, let's also put a fair point on this. Some people, including the, the, the blogses or whomever, may actually be really put out if we decline, even if we decline with really skillful grace. You know, thank you so much. We've so enjoyed it over the years. This year, we're going to be at home. People may get angry. People may be disgruntled. And that's where the danger of people pleasing means you could go back on that. And I'm going to use a heavier word here, but betray yourself. If self knows I need a bit of downtime, I need time with my sweetheart, I'm overwrought this season. It's good for me to be a bit still. I'm going to say no, as I said earlier, even to things I really enjoy. And someone's put out or worse yet kind of manipulatively, slightly guilt trippy. Oh, oh, well, we understand, Andrew, but you know, it's really not the same without you. And maybe you could come for a little while and you feel your defenses crumble if your boundaries aren't good. Um, say no. Say no with, with clarity and kindness. And be a grown-up and know some people will be disappointed and that that's not fully your responsibility. So let's have your number one tip for having a good Christmas. I think it's a variation of what I said today, the moments. 
And I know you practice your own form of quiet practice meditation. We both are keen on those sorts of practices from similar and different ways. But a moment can be as simple as I love to get couples to do the three breath hug, which is as simple as it sounds, you know, embrace chest to chest or he's taller than I. So my head's more on his chest, but a a really good face to face, body to body embrace, no speaking, breathe in once together, breathe out once together and repeat twice. Find little moments in the busyness, which can sometimes be chaos and can sometimes be rather unpleasant or stressful, sometimes not. Little moments, little moments of, I love you, babe. They'll be gone in a couple hours. Let's try to keep the faith. Or all of those things of just, you know, I really like some of the older, uh, older tales, but you know, even Scrooge was delighted that Christmas was there to give and to be kind and to you know, as Linus says in Charlie Brown, what's the true meaning of the holiday? And it's not all the glitz and glamour. It's holding hands and singing together. So that the real secret is to get out of the expectation, the shoulds, the keeping up with the blogs, whatever it is, and just say, I love you. It's a time to celebrate whatever we celebrate or have a quiet day and some Uber Eats or takeaway and watch a bunch of movies that have nothing to do with the holiday. But don't forget kindness. Don't forget giving. And don't forget that love's a lot more important than the perfectly decorated home. And my top tip is deal with the problems the whole year round rather than Mm -hmm. making a special effort at, at Christmas. Because my biggest times are straight after the summer holidays when we spent two weeks together and straight after the Christmas holidays where in the UK, basically people get two weeks holiday. Mm, that's sane. I really like that idea. And we sort of, in the run up to these things, we say, well, you know, we've got to keep everything nice so we won't raise any problems. But if you're actually dealing with the pinches during the year, you won't have a crunch waiting for you at Christmas. Very much so. It's general good communication skills, good conflict resolution skills, and anticipating. What might we run into problematically this December, babe, and how can we head it off at the pass? We're making that sound as though those are easy skills. We both know they're not. But yeah, don't wait till you're at the Olympic start line to figure out if you need an ankle brace. So let's finish on a nice sort of happy sort of place, because I would like you to share a Christmas story from one of your best Christmases? That would be my first Christmas with my now husband, five years dating, five years married now. And we met in August. And so it was our first Christmas. He worked shift work at the time, and he was very lucky that he had the 25th off until I think about 5 p.m. And he spent the night, Christmas Eve night, and my little house was decorated. At the time, I had two dogs And he had the two cats, but they were back at his house. So we had the most glorious morning. I think he made homemade cinnamon rolls. Of course, we made love in the morning. I mean, we'd only been together four months. We made love every spare minute. And then we had warm cinnamon rolls. And then we had the first ever, for the two of us, sexy stocking. Mm. And we spent like an hour with all the little gifts and notes. And we'd gone well out and the dogs opening their squeaky toys. And I think that particular 25th, We had the whole day till about three or four o'clock together. We took the dogs for a hike. It happened to be sunny, which is rare. It's usually rainy and gloomy around the 25th year. And it was just really the miracle, Andrew. And I think we forget the miracle of finding someone 
you want to attempt to walk through life with in the Mm. long term. I was 48 and he was 49 when we met. We'd both been married before. And just this joy of a Christmas with love and sparkle and and passion and connection. And I remember his sister called from, they were traveling in the States, so from Canada. And she, they hadn't talked in a few months. And he said, well, I'm I'm here with, you know, my new new person I'm dating. And and she said, well, she's a really lucky woman. And it was just beautiful. (laughs) All the support all the support. So it was really special. And we do our best each year to capture a similar vibe. And we generally have our Christmas the 25th on our own till the late afternoon when we might go to a family dinner somewhere else. Yeah, it was beautiful. It actually brings a lot of very warm feelings as I share it with you. So thanks for asking about it. Mm. And have you ever spent Christmas away from home, you know, in maybe a, <laughs> a, a Buddhist monastery or somewhere like that? Have you ever had a, have you ever had sort of a really sort of weird sort of kind of Christmas? Oh, do I ever. And the audience needs to know, we did no prep for this. I didn't know you were going to ask any of these questions. Yes. In 1998, I think, I went to India for about four months and uh, was studying Buddhism and backpacking around and all the things. So I was there over Christmas and I ended up in Goa, which some of you will know is actually a Portuguese type state. And so there's Christianity, Catholicism, I assume. And so I'm there in India and there's like, you know, mangers and and the creche and it was all quite bizarre and wonderful. And I'd been traveling about four months at that time on a very tight budget. And I thought, you know, I want a traditional Christmas dinner, uh, you know, an English Canadian Christmas dinner. And so one of the fancy hotels I was staying in a $10 a night crappy hostel had a turkey dinner. So I went with, I think, two other travelers I'd met on the train, a a British one and an Australian one, I think, two fellows. Anyway, we had this absolutely abysmal Christmas dinner with the toughest turkey. I think it was actually dog or something, shoe leather dreadful. We spent, you know, three days worth of money on it. And then I got the most violently, violently, violently sick food poisoning that lasted for three days. I was hallucinating. I thought I'd have to go to the hospital. So yeah, that was a different kind of Christmas. (laughs) Well, my husband is Mexican. So I've spent several Christmases in, in Mexico and Christmas Eve is the big time. And so the whole family gets together on Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Day is a sort of ordinary day. And, you know, some of the shops are open. And we went to a department store and you could have a Christmas lunch there. (laughs) And there was hardly anybody there, but I thought I would have their Christmas lunch, which is Mm -hmm. sort of Christmas Mexican department store with a sort of an American overfeel for it. So there was an option, which was turkey which is obviously not what they normally have. So I thought, I will have turkey. And you had the turkey with gravy, and there was a vegetable. What do you think was the vegetable? And most people can never guess this correctly, because it is just not likely. What vegetable did they serve with mashed potato, turkey, and stuffing, and gravy? What was the vegetable? I'm going to guess corn. No, I mean, that would be a very good guess because, you know, Mexico and corn go hand hand in hand. No, something truly bizarre, but very every day. I don't know. Chard? I don't know. I'm trying to think of a bizarre vegetable. Oh, do tell. I'm intrigued. I'm on the edge of my seat. Lettuce. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have got there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was thinking cooked vegetables off the hop. 
Well, <laughs> you would do. Can you imagine? They were saying, "Right, we've got the we've got the mashed potatoes, we've got the turkey, we've got the stuffing. We need a vegetable. I know. Let's have lettuce. Quick, something green. These these gringos, they like green things." <laughs> Well, there you go. I don't think we've done a very good travel log for eating at least. I think what the buyer must beware. When in Mexico, eat a Mexican meal. When in India, eat an Indian meal. I think that's a cautionary tale. Yes. Yes. And I mean, the food in Mexico is just absolutely wonderful. Oh, yeah. You could have the best chicken mole or something, you know, <laughs> but we get a little sentimental. I've been traveling for seven months and Christmas dinner sounded marvelous, but boy, I learned my lesson. Mm. So we're going to turn our attention in the bonus material in just a moment to 2024. And we're going to be talking about three things to help improve your sex life and three things to improve your communication in 2024. If you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.